Well, we are continuing tonight in our study of Revelation 20, and we're looking tonight at uh, verses 11 through 15. So find Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you again uh, tonight uh, for the freedom we have as a nation. We thank you for uh, the fact that uh, there are those who have uh, given themselves to defend our country. We thank you for that. We thank you for our leaders. We pray your wisdom for them. But Lord, we also, beyond that, as, as believers, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. We thank you. Uh, for your grace that we are free from the penalty of sin. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for the fact that uh, you do not coerce us, uh, but out of love you command us. And, uh, Lord, wisdom on our part uh, is obedience. So, Lord, help us to be wise in obeying all of your word, your principles, And, Lord, we also think of uh, this week our students who are at camp. And, Lord, we just pray that it would be an awesome week for them. And we thank you for the good reports we've already gotten. But, Lord, we just pray that you would continue to work in hearts and lives and uh, challenge our students. And, Lord, we we just thank you for the the good summer that we're having and uh, what a a joy it is to see uh, faithfulness and to see just the strong support and spirit of, of service that we've seen so far this summer. And Lord, I just thank you for that. Lord, I pray uh, t- again tonight as we study your word that you would encourage our hearts. Help us to uh, understand the sobriety of the great white throne judgment. But Lord, that we would be about your business so we can warn others. And Lord, that we would be diligent in that witness for you. So, Lord, bless once again tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we are looking at the great white throne judgment. Someone has rightly called this the court of no appeals. John MacArthur calls it man's last day in God's court. The great white throne judgment will be the judgment of the lost. I had a deacon in another church that once prayed, Lord, help us when we stand before your great white throne. No, if you stand before the great white throne, you are beyond help. 
Now, I don't do this often, but let me just read the entire introductory paragraph in Dr. MacArthur's commentary. It says this, This passage describes the final sentencing of the lost and is the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in the entire Bible. Commonly known as the Great White Throne Judgment, it is the last courtroom scene that will ever take place. After this, there will never again be a trial, and God will never again need to act as judge. The accused, all the unsaved who have ever lived, will be resurrected to experience a trial like no other that has ever been. There will be no debate over their guilt or innocence. There will be no prosecutor, no defender, an accuser, but no advocate. There will be an indictment, but no defense mounted by the accused. The convicting evidence will be presented with no rebuttal or cross-examination. There will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury, and there will be no appeal of the sentence he pronounces. The guilty will be punished with no possibility of parole in a prison from which there is no escape. From the beginning of time, Satan has been trying to deceive men into believing that there will never be a time of judgment for sin. But the Bible makes it absolutely clear there will be. This judgment is referred to in the Bible as the resurrection of judgment in John 5.29. The resurrection to disgrace and everlasting contempt in Daniel 12.2 and the resurrection of the wicked in Acts 24:15. Hebrews 9:27 says it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, which in this passage Revelation 20 is called the second death. And no one who is condemned at the great white throne judgment will have any right to complain of the sentence Because everyone there will have rejected God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5 verse 40, You are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. A person deserves to die who refuses to be rescued. And there will be no one at the great white throne judgment with a valid excuse for rejecting God's salvation. Now, we read this passage just a few moments ago, but let's walk through it. And we'll take this tonight in four parts. The first thing that we see here is the Lord. Look at verse 11 again. And I saw a great white throne... And him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Once again, Kai Idon and I saw introduces a new scene. The first thing that catches John's eye is this great white throne. The greatness of it indicates how awesome this judgment is. 
The fact that it is white probably indicates that the judgment rendered here is perfectly just and right. Psalm 97.2 declares righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Now, there is debate among scholars as to who it is that is sitting on this throne. Some want to say that this is God the Father, and others say it is Jesus Christ. But I think that is an unnecessary debate, because the Bible indicates that the Father and the Son are one, and they will both be on this throne executing judgment. In chapter 3, verse 21, we saw where Jesus promised, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Both the Father and the Son are seated on this throne. In chapter 22, verse 1, we will see where the vision of the new heaven and the new earth will include the throne of God and of the Lamb. So we don't need to split hairs here over whether the judgment of the great white throne is that of the Father or the Son. Dr. Thomas says the resolution of the two lines of teaching regarding the person of the judge lies in the oneness of the Father and the Son. Just read John 10 and verse 30. But the fact that God the Father is unquestionably on this throne, as He has been throughout the book, does not mean that the Son is not there as well. And even though this scene is borrowed from Daniel 7, 9 and 10, where the Almighty Father is pictured as the judge, the emphasis of the New Testament is on the part that the Son will play in the final judgment. In John 5, 22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. He explains in verses 26 and 27, For just as the Father has life in Himself, so even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself, and He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So the Gospels seem to emphasize the judgment of Christ in this role. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, we're told that Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul wrote, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So the hymn in verse 11 is likely an all-inclusive reference to the Father and the Son, but with the emphasis here being placed on the role of Christ in this final judgment. Now, another issue that is often debated is whether the Bible teaches just one final judgment or more than one. All millennialists and post-millennialists tend to insist that there will only be one final judgment like the sheep and goat judgment, 
which will take place at the same time for both the saved and the lost. Now, they do this because they like to generalize things to make their position seem more valid. They often emphasize verses like Matthew 25, 31 to 46, or John 5, 24 to 29, or Romans 14, 10, or 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Yet, as Dr. Thomas writes, a closer examination of most passages that allegedly teach one final judgment shows that future judgment will come in several phases. The fact of two future resurrections separated by a thousand years, as chapter 20, verses 4 and 5 clearly says, entails at least two phases of judgment. Dr. Thomas goes on to explain that the judgment of the martyrs has already taken place before the appearance of the great white throne. The judgment of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, precedes the millennium, but this one from the great white throne follows the millennium. He says the judgment of 1 Corinthians 5.10 takes place in heaven as it now exists, but the great white throne does not come until the disappearance of the present heaven. Now, those are interesting debates. I don't know how interested you are in them, but uh, I like his conclusion here. He says the inevitable conclusion is that the future judgment will come in a number of phases with this from the great white throne being the last. This is the last judgment. And notice how the Lord is described here in verse 11. It says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The term fled there pictures a violent, sudden termination of the physical universe. This is really saying the same thing that Peter is describing in 2 Peter 3, 7, when he writes, but the present heavens and earth by His Word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In verse 10, he writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So this is describing the day of the Lord when the present earth and heaven will be destroyed in preparation for the new earth and the new heaven, which is to come. In other words, this is describing, if you will, the uncreation of the universe. This is the uncreation of the world. In the same way that God spoke and the world was created in Genesis, so He will speak and the world will vanish away 
in Revelation 20. And even though the earth will have been reshaped and restored during the devastating effects of the tribulation, for a thousand years during the millennial reign, there will be a restored earth, but yet it will still be tainted by sin and still subject to the effects of the fall. So it will have to be completely destroyed and replaced by the new heaven and the new earth. Barnhouse writes, There is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. It is not that they are to be purified and rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. As they came from nothing at the Word of God, they are to be sucked back into nothingness by the same Word of God. What an amazing thing this is going to be. This will be a sudden and violent destruction of the fire of God, destroying the world. You know, it didn't take millions of years for God to create the world. It only took seven days, right? Six days, really. He rested on the seventh. It won't take long at all for him to destroy it. But before we move on to the next point in our outline, I want you to think about the judge for a moment. The judge won't be you. It won't be some of your friends. It won't be old Buddha, and it won't be Mohammed. It will be the Lord Jesus Christ. He will judge with perfect knowledge and with absolute power to deliver into hell. He is perfect in justice and holiness and will judge according to the standard that God has set. It won't matter at that point what anyone else thinks. It won't matter at that point what anyone's rank or position may have been in this life. All that will matter is what a person has done in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's where it all starts, with the Lord. But secondly, we see here the lost. Look with me at verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Drop down to verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Here are the lost of all the ages gathered together before the throne of God's judgment. Those who died at sea or were buried at sea will be resurrected here for final judgment. Perhaps the reason this is singled out is because people often think this would be the most difficult place from which to resurrect someone. But the Bible is clear that all those in the sea will be resurrected for this judgment. All those who died in the flood, all those who died at the sinking of the Titanic, all those who have been drowned or eaten by sharks, it won't matter. They will all be resurrected for the day of final judgments. And all the rest of the dead will join them. The phrase... Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them is simply 
a general way of saying that all the rest of the dead are going to be resurrected as well. Now, we're going to talk about Hades a little bit more in verse 14. But in verse 5, we were told that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed, until after the millennium. We're also told in that verse that the saints who rule and reign with Christ will be part of the first resurrection. So by implication, this is being described here in verse 12, is the second resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection to life. This will be a resurrection to death. Alford writes that this judgment refers to the wicked dead alone. There can be no doubt from a plain exegesis of the word dead from the context. The phrase gave up in verse 13 is another way of describing a bodily resurrection. MacArthur writes, the sea and death are pictured here as voracious monsters that have swallowed those bodies and will be forced to disgorge them before their uncreation. John 5. In fact, turn with me to John 5 for just a moment. John 5. Look at with me at verses 28 and 29. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear the Lord's voice and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Two resurrections. The first resurrection, resurrection to life. The second resurrection, resurrection to death. Acts 24.15 says, there, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. It doesn't say that these will necessarily take place at the same time. And as we've already seen, they do not take place at the same time. They are separated by the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. But the Bible is clear there will be both resurrections. And the judgment of the lost will be the final judgment to occur. And those who are judged there will fall under the authority of the second death, as verse 6 says. They will spend eternity in hell. By the way, before we move on, the dead here, who will face the great white throne judgment and will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire, will be made up of those who are obvious sinners, such as murderers, rapists, and criminals of various sorts, etc. But they will also be lost church members. Listen, folks, Satan would just as soon send a person to hell from a church pew as from a bar stool. And just because a person sits in church every Sunday does not necessarily mean they are born again. The self-righteous will be there. Those who think they're okay in their own deeds. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, there will be thousands of people who are counting on religion to save them. The procrastinators will be there. Those who said, you know, I intend to get saved someday, but I'm not ready to make the commitment to Christ right now. I'll do it later. But they never do. 
They will be lulled into the dangerous deception that they will have time to embrace Christ at a later date, but in this case they will discover it is eternally too late. There will be every category of mankind at this judgment. In fact, the use of the phrase great and small indicates that a vast array of unbelievers will stand in judgment on that day. For in Romans 2.11, we see that there is no partiality with God. It will not matter what the social status of a person may be. If he does not know Christ, he will be judged. Well, thirdly, we see the litigation. The litigation. Look at the last part of verse 12. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And then, this is reiterated at the end of verse 13, and each person was judged according to what he had done. It is the clear teaching of Scripture that even though we are never saved by our works, the lost will be judged on the basis of their works. The books, plural, in verse 12, refers to books that contain the record of everything that a lost sinner has ever done, said, or thought. The Bible indicates that there are recording angels that keep careful and accurate records of everything that occurs in the life of every individual. And it is on the basis of this evidence that the lost will be judged. All excuses will be completely useless. MacArthur writes, The books contain the record of every thought, word, and deed of every unsaved person who ever lived. God has kept perfect, accurate, and comprehensive records of every person's life, and the dead will be judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. They will fall short of God's holy standard. As Galatians 3.10 declares, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you're going to try to be saved by the keeping of the law, you'll never make it because you can't attain that. If you are depending on your good works to save you, or in some way by keeping God's law, you will find that you are eternally cursed because you're not able to keep the entire law of God. If you stumble even at one point, you're guilty of all. You can never live up to God's standard of righteousness. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ, Imputed to you through saving faith, you have no hope. You'll be judged by all the things you have failed to live up to God's law that is recorded in these books, and you will be condemned. Well, the books are going to be opened. But even more important, the book, singular, is going to be opened. 
This is the book of life. And the Bible teaches that every person who has ever been born has his name written in the book of life. However, if before a person dies, he does not receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his name is blotted from this book. So at the great white throne judgment, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be cast into hell. That's verse 15. Alford writes, the other books are in a sense vouchers to support what is in the book, the book of life. But the issue, according to Scripture, is not whether your name is ever in the book of life. The issue is whether or not your name gets blotted out of the book of life or whether it remains there. As John Wolvert explains, it originally contained the names of all the whole world. But at the judgment of the great white throne, many blank spaces will signal the removal of many names who never believed in Christ for salvation. Their names will have been blotted from the book of life. Do you remember the promise that Jesus gave to the church at Sardis in chapter 3, verse 5? Turn back to chapter 3, verse 5. Here's what Jesus promised to the church at Sardis. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What is that promise? The, na- the promise that your name is not going to be blotted out of the book of life. This is a promise that those who are genuine believers in Christ will never have their names erased from the book of life. Their names will still be there at the final judgment. Of course, true believers will not even appear before the great white throne judgment. But ultimately, the book of life will comprise a divine registry of all true believers. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Luke ten twenty? He said to them, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The disciples were sent out by Jesus and they came back and they were all excited because they were able to command the demons. And uh, they had been able to cast out demons, but Jesus said to them, listen, don't get excited about that. Instead, get excited about what really matters, that your names are forever in the book of life. If we're going to rejoice, that's what we need to rejoice in. And by the way, the question of what will happen to the saved during the millennium is not really dealt with in this passage. We're not told what will happen to them, but the assumption is that they will enter into the eternal kingdom with glorified bodies just like the rest of the saints. And the only ones that are in mind in this passage of Scripture are the lost. These are the lost only. Well, there's one final thing that we see here in this passage, 
and that is the lake of fire. The lake of fire. Look with me at verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As Alan Johnson explains, death and Hades are personified here in a vivid image and are cast into the lake of fire to be permanently destroyed. This explains what we will later read in chapter 21, verse 14. There will be no more death. No more death. Death and Hades will be gone forever. This is also the fulfillment of the promise that the last enemy that will be abolished is death. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. That's the last enemy to be abolished. The lake of fire is clearly, as he says, the second death. This is the final hell. The lake of fire is currently unoccupied. We're told in chapter 19, verse 20, the first two occupants in it will be the beast and the false prophet. The rest of the lost will follow them there. The word for Hades is a general word for the place where all the dead currently reside. As Dr. Thomas explains, it includes both paradise, Luke 23, 43, and Gehenna, Luke 12, 5. Abraham's bosom, in other words, and the state of torment and anguish. And you can read about that in Luke 16, 22 to 28. MacArthur says that Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol, and both words describe the realm of the dead. Sheol, used 67 times in the Old Testament, describes the realm of the dead in general. Hades is used 10 times in the New Testament in reference to the place of punishment where the unrighteous dead are kept pending their sentence to hell. So no one is in the lake of fire yet, but some are in this place called Hades. MacArthur says in this incredible scene, Hades is emptied of its captive spirits who are reunited with resurrected bodies before the bar of God's justice. Unbelievers fitted with resurrection bodies suited for hell will then be ready for their sentencing to the lake of fire where their punishment, unlike that in Hades, will last forever. The lake of fire will be forever. Of course, this is the word that is most often used for hell is the word Gehenna. It is the word that refers to the valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament times, there were some who offered their children in its fire as sacrifices to pagan gods. In Jesus' day, it was Jerusalem's garbage dump with a perpetual fire burning the city's garbage. It was a foul-smelling, maggot-infested place. And sometimes the bodies of criminals were thrown there, but it became a picture of the everlasting fires of hell. 
You say, Pastor, will hell be a literal place? Well, I don't know for sure, but I know this for sure. If it is not literal, then it is worse than what it symbolizes. If it's not literal, of course you know I believe it's a literal place, but if the language that's used to describe it is not literal, then it is worse than what it symbolizes. The lake of fire is the second death. Years ago, I heard for the first time the old saying, you're either born once and die twice, or you're born twice and die once. And you know what that means. Either you're born physically and you're born again spiritually, and if that's the case, you only have to die once and that's physically. You never face spiritual death. But for those who are only born once physically and are never born again spiritually, they will face that second death. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual death, which is hell forever. Folks, we must warn the lost. We must do everything we can do to give the gospel and to proclaim the good news that people don't ever have to end up at the great white throne judgment. They can come to know Christ and be saved forever and be forever with the Lord in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to be diligent about the things that you have given us to do. And Lord, these are sober words. This is a a picture that is difficult even to comprehend. But Lord, it is your word. It is your truth. So Lord, we thank you that you have delivered us from even the possibility of the second death. That you have redeemed us. That you have made us brand new in Christ. And so, Lord, because of that, we have the hope of eternal life. And, Lord, we know that there are many in our world who don't have the assurance of that. So, Lord, help us as we are with them, as we work with them, as we live beside them, that we'll utilize every opportunity to proclaim the message of the gospel so that they can avoid that great day of judgment. Help us to be faithful to you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.